right, so that brings us to chapter 7. Chapter 7, we're back into the historical Syro-Ephraimite War. So King Ahaz is terrified. The temptation is to form an alliance with other worldly powers, right? But that's one of the specific things God mentions not to do. God says, do not make an alliance with Egypt. Do not make an alliance with anybody. Trust in me. And so Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz to say exactly that. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And then he says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So we've probably heard some of that before. I want to go back and talk about a few pieces of that. So Isaiah goes up to King Ahaz and says, ask a sign of the Lord to you. If you want to be able to trust in God, ask of a sign. He'll give it to you. Just ask for the sign. And Ahaz responds in false piety. False piety. I shall not put the Lord to the test. Dude, God's telling you to do this. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's like, come on, put me to the test. I'm ready. Yeah. No, I should never put the Lord to the test. Yeah. I, that's a that's a really interesting distinction, too, because I remember the first time that I read this passage, I was like, I was struck by it. And I like I had to reread it because I was like, wait, what's going on here? He's like, doesn't this seem to be good? Right. And I <laughs> I think the, the distinction here when you look at this passage is that one, we can sometimes we can ask for a sign from God and that can be a lack of faith. Right. But other times, not asking for a sign can be a lack of faith. Yeah. So the key thing is faith first. Yes. And then the second thing is, you know, in certain situations, it might be very right to ask God for a sign to mm -hmm. confirm, you know, something that you're stepping out in faith to do. Right. Because he wants to do that. Yeah. He wants to help us and wants to give us that confidence that this is him behind it. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So... Yes, we get this false piety response because he'd rather trust Assyria than trust in God. Sometimes it is easier for us to trust in earthly things than to trust in God. I love the response of Isaiah. Well, the response of God, right? Is it too little for you to weary men that you also have to weary God? Come on, man. Yeah, that's I, bold. I, it is bold. I love that response. Yeah. It's just the right amount of snark. Yeah. And that just makes me happy. <laughs> He's like, you know what? The Lord's going to give you a sign anyway. You didn't want it? I'm giving it to you anyway. And this is the prophecy that we are somewhat, are probably very familiar with. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this brings us to another insider baseball controversy in the theological world. <laughs> is uh, So behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now in the... Hebrew, there's another word for virgin. It's not really virgin there. Is that a poorly translated word? We would see the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall name call his name Emmanuel. That's obviously Mary and Jesus. Yeah. Right? That's the sign. Um, but is the word virgin used there? Well, it depends on the translation. Uh-oh. 
you know, you look at you look at a lot of translations. Like I think um, when I was looking at this, I think um, even the NAB New American mm-hmm. Bible, which is the translation we read at Mass, I think that actually says a young woman, if I'm Ooh. not mistaken. Dang. Um, at least that's what I saw when I was when I was researching this. Yep. So, so I'm, there's I'm several reading. translations that. And, I, and I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Yeah, so. and what does that one say? Virgin, the one I just read. Okay. Um, yeah, I, a lot of translations kind of go between, and this was like a little bit frustrating to me. I think, um, I think it's a little bit like misleading, in my opinion. Not not like intentionally misleading or anything. Basically, what happens is when um, you know scholars are translating the Bible. They have certain rules for how they translate. And so sometimes mm-hmm. certain passages can come out very beautifully in one translation, but then a different passage might not come out very well. And so this is just my opinion, but I think that part of why I think it should say the Virgin is because the tradition, the tradition of the church, if you read um, the Church Fathers, for instance, you will see it frequently translated by them as the Virgin. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, in my opinion, just just that alone is enough for a strong translation as that. Yeah, I would agree. Um, this is a place where we do rather agree. Uh, so the note in this Bible uh, says, although some claim that the word translated virgin refers generally to a young woman. So that's really the controversy, right? Is it just general vague term young woman or is it virgin? Um, it actually refers specifically to a maiden that is a young woman who is unmarried and sexually chaste, and thus has virginity as one of her characteristics. Thus, when the Septuagint translators, 200 years before the birth of Christ, rendered Alma, here with Greek Parthenos, a specific term for virgin, they rightly perceived the meaning of the Hebrew term, and when Matthew applies this prophecy to the virgin birth of Christ, it was in accord with this well-established understanding of Parthenos, as used in the Septuagint and in other Greek writers. So, that seems pretty... uh, convincing to me yeah and in the end um like kind of like how many authors of isaiah are there i don't think this one matters either so much whether it's because it's in in the direction that it is it's going from a a very vague term to a specific application to it so it doesn't change whether whichever term it is the the prophecy is still correct yeah the moral of the story is this refers to mary (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) So uh, a little bit of insider baseball in the theological world. A lot of these controversies are, are made up and, and yeah. all just... Yeah, it's kind of a moot point a in moot a lot point. of ways. <laughs> but it can be fun. I like having these fun conversations, and yeah. I hope you enjoy it too. And if you don't, let us know <laughs> so we can avoid these in-the-weeds uh, conversations in the future. But I kind of like them, so... All right, so now we're going to flip way ahead to chapter 40. And so... In my opinion, this is the beginning of a new author of Isaiah. <laughs> and or w- possibly the beginning of a new prophecy or, by the same author. I'm, could be. <laughs> could be. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you why I think especially uh, this, uh, I hold my opinion. This is one of the big evidences for me. So I'm going to read the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. So now Isaiah is speaking to a different king, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was an okay king. He wasn't an evil king. He wasn't a terrible king. Uh, He wasn't awesome either. He wasn't the best. Um, 
So Isaiah prophesies to Hezekiah, who Hezekiah did trust in the Lord. He did the right thing. He trusted in the Lord. Um, he said, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. So he's prophesying the Babylonian exile right there. And it hasn't happened yet. He's saying, one day, everything you have here, it's going to be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Oof. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, there will be peace and security in my days. Yikes. So... Hezekiah is like, all right, yeah, you know, you're saying that the problems are going to be three generations away from me? No problem. That means it's good for me. That's not great, right? Yeah. Because I imagine, too, that the problems that they're experiencing three generations from now, they begin right here. But Hezekiah doesn't address those issues. So he really becomes part of the cause of the Babylonian exile himself. So we see there will be peace and security in all my days. The very next verse, chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That is like smacking into a brick wall. Like the change in tone is so severe in that moment. It's just completely different. We also go from uh, just um, narrative to poetry. Um, everything changes right there in that moment. Now, certainly could be a, a different prophecy um, and it, from the same author, but it seems like in that moment, there will be security and peace in my days. Then you have like intermission and a long time passes. And insert into that long time, the Babylonian exile anyway, the trauma of the Babylonian exile. And then we see the next prophecy. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That even in the midst of this terrible trauma and tragedy, God is still in the midst of them, still saying, comfort, comfort my people. And this is why Isaiah is known as the book of consolation. Isaiah chapter 40 is um, second Isaiah in my opinion, is known as the Book of Consolation. So the king of Babylon dies in 562, and the Babylonian Empire begins to crumble. Meanwhile, the Persian Empire was growing under Cyrus. So he honored the gods of the people that he conquered. In 538, he allows the Jews to go home, and he ended the Babylonian exile. So we see this already starting to happen during 2nd Isaiah. So reading straight through, you know, for chapter 40 really shows that, that change. And to me, it seems very obvious that a lot has happened, and now the people need something new. God then comes to Isaiah, second Isaiah, and says, all right, tell this to my people. Tell this to my people now. They need to hear it now. Comfort, comfort my people. So that's, at least in my opinion, why I think there are two different authors, and um Chapter 40 is really important because of that. Um, the whole tone changes, and we see, all right, we have seen people in the exile who need God to speak to them, uh, need God to reassure them that he hasn't abandoned them, that he's still with them, that he's still there. So then it takes us to the next section, which is actually um, four chapters, four chapters long, 
Um, and these are called the suffering servant passages. Now, these are really, really important passages for the book of Isaiah. They're really important passages for the church, the suffering servant passages. So we have Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53. And it's really just pieces of those um, chapters as well. So who is the suffering servant? What is the purpose of the suffering servant? The servant's vocation is to suffer for the people. It's the servant who bears the guilt of the nation. So who is the servant? And we'll, we'll read some pieces of this. Um, this is a little bit of setup. Who is the servant? Uh, is it Isaiah himself? Is he talking about himself as the one who suffers for the people, who bears the guilt of the nation? Is it perhaps King Cyrus? There's a, a, a contingent of people who think that the suffering servant could be Cyrus himself, uh, who suffers on behalf of the Israelite people and allows them to go uh, back home. Is it the prophet Jeremiah? Uh, Jeremiah is known as the prophet of suffering. He suffered a lot for, uh, for being uh, God's instrument, for being God's prophet. Is it perhaps Israel collectively? None of these really seem to fit perfectly. None of them, like there's some pros and cons to all of them. What it seems like, most likely, is that it's looking ahead to a future person. I wonder who that could be. Yeah, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. I will get to it in the New Testament. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I actually personally think it's probably a little bit of all of it, right? It's probably some of all of it. You've, you've got so many different layers of, um, of, of how God uh, prophesies, right? So many layers of fulfillment that God has. So Isaiah, was he thinking about a future Messiah? Probably not. Was he probably thinking about himself or Israel collectively? Probably. Did God use that to f have a further uh, fulfillment planned? I think so. Yeah, and I mean, it shouldn't be shocking that prophecy works that way because that's kind of how scripture is. It's like there's these multiple layers to scripture where it's like mm -hmm. you have, you know, for instance, the church teaches the literal meaning right. and the spiritual meaning and the uh, moral meaning and, right. and all this stuff. Meaning, yeah. So it's like there's there's all these layers to how God speaks through scripture. So why would it be surprising that there's these different layers yep. within his prophecy as well? I also kind of like to think of it this way where God is kind of showing off a little bit. And he's like, you know, I'm not really content in just fulfilling this prophecy once. I want to fill it, fulfill it like five times just yeah. to make sure you get the point. Yeah, I'm going to fulfill it a whole bunch of times. And he does this a lot where he fulfills it and then he fulfills it again in a deeper way. And then he fulfills it again in an even deeper way. Um, so I think I kind of think that's God showing off a little bit. And that was a nice effect of your voice getting deeper too. Yes. <laughs> and deeper and deeper. So let's look into some of these servant passages. And we hear these passages a lot, especially in Lent, right? Um, it makes the most sense. So start with 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold. So we have the introduction of the servant right here. Chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for this law. So when I, when I hear these passages, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me it's Jesus, right? It seems really obvious that yeah. 
this is really who he's looking forward to. Um, and especially as we get uh, further on in these suffering servant passages, it really um, just, it's got to be Jesus. Yeah, honestly, it would almost be frustrating reading the book of I- Isaiah and not knowing that Jesus is coming. Right, <laughs> right. And I imagine that as the uh, the apostles really understood what Jesus was doing, and then they see it and they're like, oh my gosh, this is speaking about him. Yeah. When the scriptures were opened, they've known these scriptures their entire lives, and then, oh, this is who it's talking about. Yeah. I no longer have to w- wonder, like, who is Isaiah talking about here? Yeah, that must have been just amazing yeah. to experience, to hear these stories almost like, I mean, the sort of intimacy that they would have had with the scriptures would have been something like, you know, think of maybe the most familiar childhood stories that you had ever heard. And, you know, probably some of those are Bible stories or, you know, whatever your favorite story was. That was the sort of familiarity that they would have had with these scriptures. Yeah, And so seeing that, like incarnate really in the person of Jesus. Wow. Yeah, no doubt. So we skip forward to chapter 49. Uh, We're going to start with verse seven. Um, There's a longer passage on the suffering servant here, but I'll take a piece of that. And just to piggyback from that last point, thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The God who is despised, abhorred, put to death. Kings will then bow and lay prostrate before. I love it. So good. Then we move to chapter 50. And uh, we see uh, for... For Catholics especially, this is a very familiar passage. And I'm reading from the ESV, and as I read it, I'm like, wow, this is a translation I'm not really used to. Uh, it's something we, we've heard the phrases before, but it's going to be translated slightly different. And I think it gives a different perspective on this as well. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear, to hear as those who are taught. So I love this first part, right? He gives me a tongue of those who are taught. Uh, he allows me to speak the words of God. Um, I don't have the tongue that's taught, but God has given me the words to say. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear those who are taught, to hear as those who are taught. So not only does he give him the tongue, he gives him the ear to be able to listen to God. So yeah. great, right? It's so good. He can do this to us as well. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my, the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace in spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And so, especially we see this as reference to the passion, that I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. The Lord God helps me. On a total side note, I've always wanted to start a a band called Face Like Flint. It's pretty hardcore. Oh, wow. That would be. (laughs) It it definitely would be a rock band. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was too punny. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So maybe our uh, um, our tagline for this rock band could be, And we're coming for you. That's right. Thank uh, you. Faith Fest 2021. <laughs> so we hear that one, uh, that one uh, passage a lot, especially in Lent, um, leading right up to the Passion uh, and then Easter. And then our last one is uh, chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like the root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from, of, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who is considered that he was cut off out from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Like I could just keep going, right? Like this is so spot on to Jesus. Yeah. Yep. These suffering servant passages are phenomenal in uh, understanding why Jesus went through his passion what the point of it was. And it's so important for us to, to really continue to, to meditate on these, these passages, these four suffering servant passages, especially through Lent. So that is the suffering servant passages. We've got just a couple more. Uh, I'd like to go to chapter 60 of Isaiah. So now we are in, uh, in my opinion, third Isaiah, the third person, uh, as some might say, the third person of the Isaiah, uh, and uh, so now we've moved beyond the exile. Uh, we're right at the beginning um, of the, the end of the exile. Cyrus has allowed his people to go home, allowed the Jews to go home uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And we see chapter 60 is about the future glory of Israel. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So now we see everything will be restored. God is planning on restoring all of this and restoring it better than it even was before. Other nations will be drawn to your light. And so to me, that's obvious that, okay, now that the exile is ending, there is hope for the future. There's a lot of hope for the future. Yeah, and one thing that I like here too is that Isaiah not only prophesies of Jesus and Mary, he also prophesies of the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, because ultimately that's what this is. That's what yep. that's exactly what we're called to be. Yep, absolutely. 
there's another section here that's that's great. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. Even a promise of a universal church full of foreigners, full of Gentiles. So good. So then uh, the last piece I want to hit today is chapter 66, the very last chapter of Isaiah. And I want to look at uh, verse 15 and 16. So again, we're talking about this restoration. This third piece is the third Isaiah is all about restoration and God uh, bringing his people back. And then it says, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind and to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Oof. I think what we see here is not so much the anger and wrath, like those parts are, are part and parcel with this all. I see it a purification, right? So when we see fire, fire purifies. And this is what God wants to do. He wants to purify. But I think even more than that, you see wind and fire, who does that represent? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. I think we see a promise of Pentecost here. That 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 Holy Spirit, which he in the Old Testament, he gave on specific people for a specific purpose. Now this is going to be given to everybody. Bring it. Bring it. And we <laughs> see that fulfilled in Pentecost, which we just passed. Yeah. Yeah. This is so fitting, too. I was just thinking as you were saying all of this. Today is, I believe, Mary, Mother of the Church, right? The well, Feast of Mary, Mother of the Church. The day that we're recording this is. Yeah. Not the day this is released. Yeah, of course. Sorry. And, you know, our you listeners just, could be listening in, you, you know, just, July for all we know. <laughs> you just gave away a trade secret of, you never tell people when we're recording. I know. I know. But it was too fitting. It is too fitting. It's really good. Yeah. So today's the day after Pentecost, which yep. um, Pope Francis proclaimed Mary, Mother of the Church. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. So. Um, that really wraps up Isaiah. We just like barely scratched the surface, though. I feel like we could have done like a whole another. We could just do a whole year on Isaiah himself. It's yeah. so good, so deep. That'll so, be twenty twenty two. Oh yeah, we'll let's do, do that. Every episode is the book of Isaiah. <laughs> yeah, you guys will like that, right? I think yeah, that's fine. We'll just do an entire. Yeah, the funny thing we'll is, we could we would have to do more than one chapter per episode to do that. That's true. That's yeah. true. Fifty. This is a commitment, but hopefully, you know, our listeners, hopefully you can hear that this is a commitment that's worth making of yeah. getting to know Isaiah and his prophecies. Absolutely. The one and only Isaiah. Absolutely. So I'd like to say that coming up next is the interview with Dan Schmidt, but I feel like we have to split this episode into two pieces. So if we've already done that, um, I don't know what's next. We haven't figured that out yet. So thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Welcome back to the Flint Catholic Podcast. Today we're joined by Father Paul Donnelly, the pastor of Our Lady of Guadalupe and Christ the King. Good morning. Good morning. So let's just begin with, uh, you know, as we have to with all clergy, how did you become a priest and what brought you to this place here? How did I become a priest? Well, Bishop Earl ordained me a priest on uh, June 10th, 
2016, going to be five years. Wow, so we have, the, we have the same ordination date anniversary. That's right. I didn't know that. Yes, you, you were ordained a deacon at the same mass where I was ordained a priest. It was a Friday night. 16, it would have been, you're right. Yes. I'm, I'm dumb. <laughs> I'm really dumb. I feel bad now. Um, he's not dumb. He's my housemate. <laughs> um, anyway, I was ordained that Friday night to the priesthood, and I had been in preparation for 17 years. That's a long time. It's a long time, yes. I maybe began. maybe that's why you know I, I forgot because you are so much older than me. I'm a lot older than Father Tony. <laughs> I'm going to be forty in August, Saint Dominic's Day. Please send gifts. And, uh, yes, please send gifts. And I was ordained at age uh, thirty-four. I'm going to be forty-one. Sorry, I'm getting my math all confused. I uh, am a lot older than Father Tony. That's the point. I was born in 1981. I am not a millennial. I'm the last of Generation X. And my vocation story began in the late 20th century. (laughs) I was 17. Uh, it's, It's debatable, but 16, 17. I would say, especially when I was 17, my faith came alive and Jesus became someone who was real to me. And it was new in a new way. Not that I had not had encounters with the Lord before. I certainly had back at age 12, at age 11, um, again at you know, 15, 16. But something became much deeper when I was 17. My knowledge, my friendship, and most of all, my desire for Jesus. And so other things that I had desired before that, like to become a surgeon, I found biology fascinating, anatomy and physiology fascinating. I wanted to work as a surgeon. I, I love the way that the, the organs and all the parts of the human body work, uh, the joints. And anyway, something I wanted was to become a surgeon. And I, I had some kind of vague 17 year old plans to do that. I was also doing a whole lot of music, a lot of music, about 25 hours a week. It was both my paid job and my, um, you know, pastime recreation. And it's, it's totally true. You've got an incredible set of pipes. You can sing like crazy. I like to sing. And I, that goes back to age hmm, probably 13 was when I really started to sing. Anyway, I was doing a whole lot of music, and I was offered a scholarship to Interlochen uh, wow. to study vocal performance, and that was when I had to make the decision. It was that year, that, actually that summer, when I had begun to think about the priesthood, uh, just thinking like, this is weird. Why am I thinking about this? <laughs> this is weird. All I wanted was to you know, get married and... Uh, either go into medicine or go into music and why am I thinking about something that I didn't want and now it's almost like I want it (laughs) I don't know what's going on but I knew I knew that basically that was a crossroads you know or a fork into the road that uh, I could either choose to go to Interlochen and um, and pursue music or I could just say no thanks and uh, pursue the priesthood. And I was quite eager to pursue the priesthood, and I no longer really cared that much about making a living as a musician. So that's when it began. It was a long time ago, 1998. And I can tell you the date, the night. It was March 13th, 1998, when I had an experience in prayer that was like before and after. Again, it wasn't the first encounter, but it was. it's the, the single moment that stands out the most as before and after there was no going back. So I was 17. What did I, say? I was 16 at the time. I was going to be 17 that August day, St. Dominic's Day, send gifts. 
Please send cash. I can't cope with gift cards very well. They make me go to stores <laughs> I don't like. So please send cash. Anyway, <laughs> um, it was uh, March 1998. And after that, I, I enrolled in philosophy that fall. I was, uh, I was still 17 when I enrolled in philosophy full-time at Ave Maria Institute, which is now Ave Maria University in Florida. It was in Michigan at the time in Ypsilanti. And uh, I did four years of philosophy. Then I graduated with the BA in theology. And I had decided in the meantime to join the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal in uh, the South Bronx, New York. Now, I um, worked for a year for Renewal Ministries. Shout out, plug, hands up, everyone, please check out Renewal Ministries and, and, uh, and ask them how you can serve because you will not regret it. So I, I worked for them in promotion. Uh, events promotion publicity for about a year I loved it and I wonder whether I might still be working there if I had remained a layman anyway I worked there for a year and then I uh, went to the South Bronx and uh, they shaved my head and they gave me a robe and sandals no ring and uh, they I entered into postulancy and then actually the robe and the sandals were with novitiate and I uh, was in the South Bronx for about three years uh, in temporary vows and then Honduras, Central America. Wonderful, beautiful place. It um, is unforgettable. And, uh, anyway, I, I was there for six years. 2003? No, 2006 to 2009. I was there for three years, 06 to 09, and then came back to the Bronx for another six years. So two very different places. I mean, poverty in Honduras is quite unlike poverty in the Bronx materially and spiritually there may be some consonance some resonance there between uh the two but also even in some respects spiritually different manifestation of poverty um it's it's pretty simple people who have less more easily become aware that there must be someone to depend on and if he's good then they can depend on him yeah can we can we stay on this just for a little bit? Um, I'm really interested to hear about uh, perhaps your your time in both places, New York and in Honduras. Um, what kinds of things did you do there? Obviously, you're ministering to the poor, um, but what did that look like? Um, what kind of things did you do sure. in both places? So in the Bronx, we had homeless shelters, soup kitchens, after school catechesis and activities and basketball and field trips for kids in the neighborhood, tough neighborhoods. Um, we had uh, post-abortion ministry that I was sometimes a part of, which, I mean, something like something like one out of two children in New York City is aborted, wow. like dies wow. before birth in certain populations. One out of two. And in, in, in one minority population, it's a little bit more than one out of two a little more than 50% don't make it to birth. And so a lot of people, of women, of men, of brothers, of children are post-abortive in New York City. Yeah, it was quite an active ministry and I was able to be part of it um, in various ways, especially when I learned Spanish, especially my second stint in New York. So um, material help, spiritual help, a lot of retreats, a whole lot of like parish missions in all the parishes in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and a whole lot of retreats for youth. They're called Youth 2000. Uh, at this point, I think they're called Face to Face, something like that, but it's the same. They had a facelift 
And anyway, when I was uh, in high school, I went on a youth 2000 retreat in, in New York, in New York. And right. Yep. Uh, yeah, they were great. I mean, very dynamic, very uh, rich, and just a real encounter with the Lord every time. Uh, not only with Jesus and the Eucharist, but also just with the Holy Spirit and with uh, the joy, the dynamism, the new desire and deeper desire that comes with learning that the Lord is alive. He's not someone to be imitated. He's someone to be followed. He, he is walking today and inviting us to follow. And so we were able to bring that to young people, to high schoolers, many, many times with a whole lot of help on the part of uh, a team of lay people, uh, parish staff. We would collaborate for a Friday to Sunday event over and over. It traces back to the 40 hours devotion, which many of our grandparents would know and some of our parents. 40 hours became U2000 when it became a high school retreat. So we did a whole lot of that. And um, in Honduras, our work was quite different. We also offered material help, but um, it would be literally like one and a half tons of food uh, at a time that we would pass out. Uh, rice, beans, cooking oil, a little bit of sugar, some salt. That was um, for a couple hundred families at a time in the neighborhood, and they were the neediest cases. There are lots of people who do struggle and do wonder where their next meal is coming from in the working class in Honduras. And most of them, we didn't help because there were so many, we would only, we kept, kept a, a list that was updated, that was strictly um, m regulated, reviewed, and we would target families who not only were poor, but also ha happened to have, for instance, a disabled child in the home full-time, or a disabled parent in the home full-time, or had gone through a murder. Uh, one of the families died victim to murder. Anyway, we gave a lot of food out, and that was a fun day. It was one day a month. We would sing songs and pray with people and hand out a ton or two tons of food at a time. Yeah. And for, I mean, for, for you, it would cost maybe $6 to purchase that much food. And um, for them, that that's a full day's wages. You could work in the field for a whole day. You wouldn't even get $6. You would get $5 at the time, the equivalent. Meaning if I show up, I'll, I'll get as much food as I would need to work one day to purchase. means a little bit to us and it means a lot to them. So that was just supplemental for them. We offered a lot of food. We offer, offered surgical care. So I got to work in ORs. And remember, I wanted to be a surgeon. Yeah. I've seen a lot of surgeries, and I love it. And I don't mean on YouTube, and I don't mean on some reality show. <laughs> I mean in person, in the OR, getting to help in advance uh, as a translator between visiting surgeons who might not speak Spanish and patients who don't speak English, translating in pre-op, translating in post-op, even transporting beds, uh, a little bit like an orderly cleaning beds in between surgeries. So it's fun. And I'm not going to go into it because some of your listeners may be squeamish, but we, <laughs> or we, some of the hosts, some of the hosts may be squeamish. <laughs> so I got to work in surgery and that was, that's a full time 365 days a year clinic that offers medical care and about six weeks out of the year offers surgical care, full time dental care, pharmaceutical care. And all of that is uh, staffed by Hondurans, Honduran medical professionals with visiting benefactors and um, surgeons and surgical staff. Did you see people like Doctors Without Borders? No, no, they never came. We had our own organizations that we oh, built wow. up with lay people. And when I say we, I don't mean friars, I don't mean clergy, I mean lay people and we, their friends, built together oh, a couple awesome. of different groups. Yeah. One is wow. the um, uh, Solanus Casey Medical Mission Group. Another one was Light of the World. So no, no Doctors Without Borders. 
they do great work, but not in our right. clinic. We had sure. our own um, friends do, organizing all of that. Another plug, shout out, please donate, Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, especially in Honduras. They are trying to underwrite the costs of an orphanage that just lost all of its funding, and they have a couple hundred kids that the friars are. They don't run it, but they're the chaplains, and they're asking for donors to help to uh, just pay for room and board for a couple hundred kids. It's a wonderful Catholic place, and that goes to... Um, from, from basically newborns all the way through college age, kids who've grown up in the orphanage and they're being supported through the end of college. Anyway, um, we uh, worked in surgical care, a lot of crisis intervention. People lived close to the edge. It was life and death every day. I remember uh, many tragic funerals, including starvation, including murder. I should say, I was never at a funeral of someone who died of starvation. I heard about uh, twice a child whom we had known when the child lived in the neighborhood that later when they moved elsewhere in the country n they didn't find help they were malnourished they got sick and they died two children um, Dennis and Edelvina anyway I never met anyone in the Bronx who died of starvation and uh, it was quite um, jarring to move from Honduras back to the Bronx we um, uh, did this as I say crisis intervention there's a lot of uh, just neighborhood violence there certainly was murder and murders more or less would go uninvestigated unprosecuted uh, uncharged so if you lost a son or daughter husband wife son you know sister brother to murder you would just uh, do the funeral quickly because they don't do embalming there and then uh, have nine days of mourning after the burial different than what we do here because we do embalming <laughs> and um and then you would anyway you would have the funeral and then you would just go back to work either washing clothes all day on your feet or making tortillas all day on your feet or uh working in the field or in construction etc but um even being able to take time off of work to mourn a murdered family member is not something that that some of them can do that was a part of life there I want to say I was never in danger in, in three years. I was never in physical danger, not from the people, not from the dogs. You know, the dogs are small there. They're big here. Um, and there were even times when I was able to intervene and end a dispute between two neighbors. So I don't want to babble here, but there's just a lot going on in Honduras. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Most days were just full of this these gorgeous sights and sounds and smells, the smell of tropical rain hitting the earth I mean orchids hummingbirds a thousand kinds of citrus fruits you know just you could just pluck them off of the tree as you were walking into downtown from from the neighborhood uh, freshest coffee you can see the hillsides where the coffee grows um, and and just I mean when it's mango season you eat mangoes 10 every day you know when it's pineapple season you eat one whole pineapple every day yourself because the guy next to you is trying to finish the rest of the pineapples too but very <laughs> abundant in terms of fruits of the earth uh, and always you know we ate simply in, in Honduras we had rice and beans five days a week with a little fresh pico de gallo tortillas never got tired of it and actually it was quite striking if you eat the same thing every day you enjoy it and you don't eat too much <laughs> and we had meat twice a week so it was a wonderful way of life there were uh, six to ten of us in the friary at the time and lots of co-workers good friends both uh, Honduran and foreigners uh, nearby and the the city I lived in was about a hundred thousand people but it's more like you know a hundred villages of a thousand people that are kind of clustered together around the colonial downtown 
So in Honduras, we lived in the mountains. It wasn't hot. It was maybe a little bit warm two months out of the year and kind of a little bit cool one month out of the year and just very balmy and mild nine months with a one-hour tropical shower every afternoon during five months of the year. My whole point is Honduras is a wonderful, magnificent, beautiful place. Most of you have probably never been there. Some of you will go one day. And it's maybe the best place to learn scuba diving on site, which I was <laughs> I was able to learn. And I have been able to uh, go back and help with surgeries a couple times since I moved back to the States. So, you know, in Honduras, I could tell you stories with names of people who just changed my life because of their faith. Um, you know, Doña Dionisia, uh, she, one time she was annoyed with me because I, I, I didn't answer the door when she knocked or something. And, um, and she came and... Uh, you know, she was just um, a humble soul, didn't have a lot of recourses, even mentally a little bit, mentally ill. And, uh, oh, I know, she, she wanted me to repair her roof. And I said I would do it Thursday, but she thought, thought I said Wednesday. And when I say repair, I mean like climb up on the roof with rocks and a tarp and patch a hole with rocks and a tarp. And so she was kind of teasing me like, you didn't show up for this. And, uh, and I said, well, I'll be there Thursday. And, um, and I said, well, gosh, I'm sorry I wasn't there. And you know who is eager to have your roof repaired? And she pointed pointed up like the Lord is. And um, and I said, well, you're right. He does. He, he wants her roof repaired. And uh, she said, you know, he just loves me. He loves me too much, too much, too much. That's it. That's my story. I can never forget it. She was a woman who uh, barely has anything to eat, who's graciously cheerfully asking for help to repair a roof because she can't climb up and put rocks and a tarp on the roof and she's telling me and i'm rich and physically able and i will never worry about where i'll sleep or what i'll eat or if i need to leave a country whether i can leave i can always leave i'm american i will never worry about things that she wonders about maybe doesn't worry but wonders about every day and she's telling me he just loves me too much too too much as if to say i just can't get over it, how much he loves me. That is an example of someone I knew in Honduras that I'm very grateful to have known. And moving back to the Bronx was jarring. It was confusing. It was uh, bewildering, the things that people complain about. And I'm not trying to trash the Bronx. I love the Bronx. I really love the Bronx. I lived there for nine years. I go back to visit. But um, such a different kind of malaise just in our society, in our culture. We have so much materially and so little spiritually and so little real relationship people really seeing each other it took it took a few months to adjust when i was back for theology studies so i did theology from 09 to 13 and then at, by that time i knew i was not going to be a franciscan priest but a diocesan priest and uh, bishop earl invited me uh, to come to uh, the diocese of lansing where i'm a native i was born in ypsilanti he uh, invited me to come back home. I thought I would be with the Archdiocese of New York. I knew many of the clergy. I knew some of the bishops there. I went to seminary there, and I was ready to do that. But uh, unbeknownst to me, Father John Linden, who was the vocations director at the time, he had heard about me from someone else. I hadn't asked anyone to put my name in his ear, but someone else did. And uh, it was a friend who said, why don't you just call Father John? It can't hurt. Monsignor Jerry Vinky when he was Monsignor and not Bishop, he uh, told me when I saw him at a Lansing Lugnuts game one time, he said, well, Paul, if you're going to be a parish priest, then um, just come home, just come to Lansing. And I said, 
I don't know. You know, I've just been gone for so long. Nobody knows me, and I don't. I don't think that it would work. You know, I, I've been in New York for so long. He said, "Just call John Linden." So I called Father John. He said, "I just heard about you last week." And a month later, he and I were sitting down meeting. And a month later, I was moving from the Bronx to. I'm oh, sorry. Met with Father John. The month later, met with Bishop Earl in person. We had a very long talk. He said, "What brings you here? Tell me your story." And uh, at the end of that conversation, he just said, "Well, um, when we get." You know your your files as you may know when you're a seminarian and a franciscan there are lots of files on you and he said we have most of your files they look good when we get the rest of them uh then we'll you know give you a phone call and you can come in i want you to live in flint and he said uh, we'll take care of health insurance and uh, i was very pleasantly surprised that the the interview and the process for bishop earl was quite so simple just tell me everything and um and I knew that I was going to be a priest and a priest of the diocese. And that was basically because the friars, even though they do a lot of wonderful work, none of it is parish work. It is all extra parochial. They're trying to serve needs that they have identified have not been met by religious who serve parishes as parish priests. Therefore, getting closer and closer to priesthood, even though when I was a brother, I loved it. I was rocking and rolling. As I was closer to being a priest and a father, I realized I want to be the pastor, the shepherd, to have... Um, a, a, a long, continuous, sustained relationship with a flock and not just be in a place for, for a year or a couple of years and then, and then move along. So ha- having made that decision, I was very grateful to just know not only do I get to be a, a priest, you know, a shepherd, a pastor, but in my own land, you know, in, in mi tierra natal, as we say in Spanish. And so I, I moved uh, on my birthday, August 8th, St. Dominic's Day, to... Uh, to Flint. The first day I ever set foot in Flint is the day I moved in. Father Tom gave me a, a key to the rectory. I put all my stuff here. And then I went up north for a week uh, to, to relax with my family up there and, and came back and started work. And I was uh, a deacon at the time. And um, the funny thing about Flint is that Bishop Earl didn't know that while I was back in New York a month before, I was reading in this magazine about faith in Flint. Uh, it was Faith Magazine and this new initiative that Bishop Earl had started to combine a lot of clergy and fl- infuse, if you will, some clergy into Flint and make of what had been many distinct missions one great mission for the city. And when I was reading it, and at that time thinking I would reside in New York for the rest of my life, I was jealous. I thought, man, I want to live in Flint. I wish I could be part of that uh, initiative of that, um, that, that, that jump, that leap. And not too uh, much later, Bishop Rowe was telling me, you're going to live in Flint. And I did a little, you know, somersault in my heart uh, while, while he and I were, were sitting there. And I came to Flint in 2015. I was ordained a priest in 2016. And I have I've loved it very much. I love Flint very, very much. I have served mostly at Our Lady Guadalupe, but of course, as a priest in 10 or 11 other parishes too uh, around the county, sometimes in, in greater depth, uh, sometimes more extensively, and sometimes just passing through for a daily Mass. I was able to teach at St. John Vianney School for two years, um, two full days a week, and that gave me a lot a, a lot of new respect for teachers. <laughs> yep. I, yep. I loved it. I loved it, and I still love it when I when I have these fond memories, and I, I still know some of the kids. They're getting so, so old so fast, but every time that I was teaching for the day from, you know, eight to three thirty, 
by the time I came back to the rectory, just kind of shuffling across the parking lot, all I could manage to do was shuffle upstairs and collapse on top of my bed and fall asleep for about 20 <laughs> minutes. I was so exhausted. The mental acrobatics, just the always problem solving and doing, you know, uh, seven or eight presentations to seven or eight groups in a day. It was uh, a lot of new lessons for me. Wow. Hats off to teachers. Thank you to all of you, especially those who yeah. te teach the faith. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I only have two a day and it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of work, mm -hmm. a lot of work and a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. my gosh. I'm loving it too. It's yeah. fantastic. Although today is the last day for the eighth graders, last day of school for them. And so uh, I'm excited for them. I'm also excited for me a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> last day of school for them. Endless summer, baby. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so now you're back in Flint. Now you're here. Uh, what, uh, what, you know, you've, you talked a little bit about what really attracted you to Flint, the Faith in Flint initiative. What have you, is that what you found to be true? If you really found that, that fulfilling um, here in Flint? I was excited about Flint and about the church's initiative in Flint back in 2015 when I had never set foot in Flint. I never laid eyes on Flint. I, I think I flew out of Flint Bishop one time in my whole life, but that isn't the city of Flint. Anyway, I was excited. And when I, when I moved in, I got to know the city much better. I think the day after I moved in, uh, came back from up north. That was a Sunday. And on Monday, I went out knocking on doors with Father Dan Kogut. And that began many, many uh, outings of just knocking on the doors and meeting the neighbors. As simple as that. That was on the east side of Flint, around St. Mary's on Franklin Avenue. And I met a lot of good people. And they were living in one of the most notorious neighborhoods, in not only in, in the state, but in the country. And uh, they were grateful to meet a friendly neighbor. That was really about the extent of it. We prayed with many people. We would begin by just saying, you know, hey, good to meet you. Uh, I am Father Paul, and I haven't met you, even though I'm your neighbor. So I thought I wanted to meet you. And no demands, no questions, not offering a bulletin, just offering um, a presence. And the only question is, you know, hey, what's your name? And people would offer their names very often, very quickly. That would uh, become a real conversation about what was filling them up, what was frightening them, what they had seen in the neighborhood, what they had seen in the city over the years. And, and we would ask if it seemed right. And most often it did, Hey, is there anything we can pray for? And we would just pray right there on the spot, on the doorstep. I've never been in danger, not in Honduras, not in the South Bronx, which has had a reputation over the years and not in Flint. I've never been afraid of a person even when uh, a door was opened and it was clearly a crack house, it wasn't frightening. People were as friendly as can be. Hey, preacher, good morning. Good to see you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I have been nervous about dogs a couple of times in America, not in Honduras. <laughs> so I may carry uh, bear spray for the dogs, <laughs> for the big, strong, mean ones that no one takes care of them. They're made to be mean. Anyway, that's my story about whether... Uh, Flint is dangerous. I've never been in danger. Yeah, And so that was the beginning. I was also teaching in the school two days a week at the time. I was still a deacon and I was preparing for priesthood as one does in a unique way. I wasn't in seminary. One of my ordination classmates wasn't in seminary either. He was working uh, at the diocese, Father Mike Murray. 
He, uh, he was in Lansing. I was in Flint. Two were in Detroit, Father Peter Lawrence, uh, whose sister was on this podcast, mm-hmm. and also Father Ryan Riley was in Detroit. And finally, Father Brian Lenz was in Rome. So there were five of us who were on June 10th ordained together, and we were living in four different cities in the year before ordination. And we were just getting to know each other a little bit from a distance. My preparation for priesthood was in my third year as a deacon, and it was full-time ministry, which I, I loved. I just really, really enjoyed. Now, aside from um, the fact that you can go door-to-door in Flint because it's urban, it's not suburban, and people are ready and willing to meet a new neighbor, I, and I've also done that in New York. I've also done that in Honduras. Uh, I call it door knocking. Some people call it canvassing. So anyway, um, there was also this kind of liveliness about the city, about uh, new businesses, young people moving in. And I would always find every time that I went somewhere in Flint, I would make new friends. And uh, it was something about Flint. People were eager to make a new friend because there's a sense of possibility and of uh, a new beginning in Flint. And I mean economically and um, just culturally. There are tremendous uh, re- cultural riches in Flint. The museums, the performing arts, uh, the artists who live here, uh, the fine arts, the, the, the food, the festivals, the, the, again, the liveliness, the farmer's market, which is the best in the state outside of Eastern mm-hmm. Market in Detroit. And I have Grand Rapids farmer's market friends who are vendors there who, when they saw the Flint market, they said, wait a minute, why can't we have this in Grand Rapids? This is the best market. Anyway, a lot to just enjoy. Life is really fun in Flint. And I was uh, struck by how much people were eager and ready and willing to make friends with a priest who were not people of faith, not people of faith at all. I mean, even yesterday I made friends and had a long talk with a fellow who's Muslim who was fascinated to just be able to visit with a priest. And I I consider him now an acquaintance. Uh, He was going to follow up with me about a mutual friend Anyway, I, I, I enjoy that about Flint, and this it's in the last six years that I've experienced that kind of approach, that kind of openness, much more than any time before in my life, and that's only my own uh, perspective, but anecdotally, I didn't find that in, in New York City, and I didn't find that in Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, all places that I am fond of, but there's something about Flint. And let me say finally, one reason that I am excited to stay in Flint is this, the potential for racial reconciliation mm. through the church that is unique to Flint. The potential is unique to Flint. When one goes out in Flint for some live music or for some lunch or for coffee or down to, I don't know, to go kayaking in the Flint River, which is clean, by the way, and the tap water has been clean for five years, I've had it tested. I drink Flint City tap water every day and have, for the last five years, half a gallon to a gallon, and I'm fit as a fiddle. Please let people know the water in Flint is no longer poisoned. We are not victims. Our city is not a victim city. We are full of victors. Okay, thank you. So the the Flint River is a great place to to play. We do kayaking there. I was literally walking, wading in the river this morning because I like to go down to the Mott Park uh, Riverside to pray. And I was there praying and it was just calm and a little bit rainy and I had my sandals on and I just stepped out into the water and it was beautiful. It was full of fish. I saw a muskrat. I mean, it's full of life. Flint is full of life. We are not a victim city and we are not an orphan. We have a father who loves us, who's crazy about us and is ready to fill Flint with his Holy Spirit when we ask and to cast out the works of the devil 
and I can name them, but I won't because that wasn't your question. So the reason that I'm excited to say is the fellowship I have with Protestant pastors, which has been very easy, uh, fraternal, collegial. We pray together. We're real friends. And I mean black pastors, white pastors. And I uh, have found when I go out, when one goes out to have some fun in Flint, I find that people mingle across uh, racial lines, and I mean black and white, uh, more so in Flint than I ever found in Ann Arbor, and more than I ever found even in the Bronx. And that's something I enjoy. When when I make new friends, they're not just people who are pale-skinned like I am. And I am excited for that reason, the fact that we're just friends and friendly and people are eager to make new friends, that we as a church, and it must be the church, it will not be the government. It must be the church, people of faith, who in faith come together to pray in Jesus' name and again to cast out the works of the devil, who loves to sow division, dissension, accusation, condemnation, uh, rage, terror. Please stop reading the news, whoever you are, wherever you're hearing this. Please dial down your news consumption by about 90%, because what it is full of is provocations to rage and terror. And the more that we indulge in rage and terror, rather than indulging in the Holy Spirit, inviting the Holy Spirit, breathing in the Holy Spirit, the more that we participate with the works of the devil. Preach. <laughs> Preach. Preach. So from here, we're, um, let's, let's look forward. Let's look forward to the city of Flint. Um, so coming up in, uh, on June 13th, we've got an event at Powers. Um, we're really trying to reimagine what the Catholic community of Flint actually is. Uh, so can you speak on that just a little bit? The Catholic community of Flint is a single church united under Mother Mary, whom we call Mary Mother of Flint, and united around the sacraments and filled with the Holy Spirit in order to fill the rest of the city and the rest of the lives of all those who live here with the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name we have united going back to 2015 in a structural way in order to have a spiritual power that was not possible when we were structurally divided and structurally more isolated we have made some progress in the last six years and we haven't made all the progress <laughs> there's more progress to be made believe it or not and one uh, thing that i can say very simply is what we've been doing hasn't been working when it comes to the way that people worship on Sunday at the altar uh, and the Eucharistic Jesus. Many people simply have their preferences when it comes to the address of the, of the altar that they go to, when it comes to the language that they hear. And keep in mind, I am the pastor of a bilingual parish. Um, when it comes to the, the rubrics, there are people who have preferences one way or the other and who probably without meaning to uh, drift into a kind of spiritual indulgence where what I'm going to do in order to worship God is find the place that does things the way that I like. I will move heaven and earth in order to make sure that things remain the way I like in that place. And I will participate insofar as I wish to, want to, am able, maybe every Sunday, maybe, you know, three Sundays out of four, whatever. The point is that as long as we in Flint, even with uh, structural initiatives to reach out, not just to serve within the church, but to find people who are not in the church, people who are not believers, 
as long as we have continued to indulge our own preferences with respect to both the liturgy and the building nostalgia, a sentimental preference for a parish that one grew up in. The effect is that most of the people who attend Sunday Mass in the city of Flint don't live in the city of Flint. That is not pleasing to God. It is not his plan. It's not his mission. Most of the people who live in the city of Flint do not worship God in the Eucharist on Sundays in any place. That is not God's plan. It is not his mission. The question is not what is our mission? What is Catholic Community of Flint's mission for Flint? No, that's not a helpful question. The question is this, Lord, what is your mission for Flint? And how can we, Catholic Community of Flint, be part of your mission? I assure you his mission is far greater than just us. I see it in other churches, and I mean Protestant churches, where there is real ministry, real encounter, real knowing where people are living, uh, knowing what thrills them, what fills them, what kills them, and and bringing the, the good news. And I mean the good news, the transforming news, that you suffer with him in order to glory with him, etc. There are churches that are doing that that are not Catholic. And I won't deny it, and I won't naysay it, and I won't say that uh, that they stole them from Catholic churches. That's not the way it works. Uh, the Holy Spirit attracts people, and uh, he is willing to use any and all means he can. And he will use believers who are baptized, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, uh, that he will use believers who are not in the Catholic communion. What we want in Flint is to be part of God's mission for Flint, and it doesn't involve serving ourselves and our own spiritual preferences. Uh, it involves recognizing that we've mostly been satisfied with ourselves for a long, long time, and most residents of the city of Flint have never even been invited to walk into a Catholic church, have never even met a Roman Catholic who came to their door saying, hey, I'm your neighbor, wanted to meet you. So we, it's time to make a change, and our uh, Mass on June 13th, which is St. Anthony's Day, except that it's a Sunday, our Mass on June 13th at Powers Catholic High School over on the athletic fields, it is something we endeavor to do in part in order to be a visible witness that people driving by will see us. It's a busy intersection there. Um, but also that the people who have been used to doing things a certain way in Flint uh, every Sunday for, what, 20 years, you know, 10, 20, 50 years, there's, of course, uh, a whole range of, of ages and histories of people who come to Mass in Flint. But all of those people, including people recently immigrated from Cuba, from Venezuela, who come to my church, including people who've lived, who grew up in the city but live in, in the suburbs uh, in Genesee County for 50 years, they will find that they're doing something different than what they're used to, and it's okay. No, it's better than okay. It's wonderful. It is uh, exciting. It's new, and it's the Lord who unites us. That Part of the effect is that worshiping Jesus in the Eucharist on the Lord's Day, as is his command, is not something that divides us, but something that unites us. It is effectively absurd that our worship of God effectively divides us along racial lines, along linguistic lines, and along economic lines. When asked the simple question, what would please God? That we be divided in all those ways, most of all, when we come to him in the Eucharist, to his son in the Eucharist? or that coming to his son in the Eucharist is what unites us. Mm. I think that's one of my favorite things about what's going to happen on the 13th is, I don't know if this has ever happened, where we invite every single Catholic in the city of Flint 
to one mass where everybody's going to be gathered together in one space and and really that's going to be the the vision we're pitching like this is one church this is one thing and and we're going to see that in a very visual way it's one church one mission one lady one mother of flint and and the purpose of it is not to have a cool event and then go home and go back to our old ways uh and I'll, i'll i'm going to be very blunt i hope you all are prepared you listeners if the reason that you're coming to my church or coming to your parish is to assure that that parish remains open so that you can get what you want from that parish when you want it, then you have drifted into spiritual indulgence. No, I say spiritual decadence. And it will not result in God's glory, nor in your sanctification. And if you are resolved to make sure to do whatever it takes to make sure that that church stays open, that your preferences can be met for as long as you should live, then I'm a pastor. I'll say it. It would be better if that church would close. It would be for God's glory because we would no longer be able to indulge and to practice spiritual decadence. I even say it of my own parish. If we're all here to make sure that we can all keep coming here and we don't have to endure the inconvenience of going somewhere else, then we should close this church today chain up the doors because we are not even looking even seeking even asking lord what is your mission for flint mm-hmm. yeah dicho. that's spanish for i have spoken <laughs> <laughs> i that's, love that that is fantastic well Father Paul, thanks for joining us today um we appreciate the insights we appreciate you telling us a little bit about yourself and uh yeah thank you you're welcome. If you want me to sing a song, <laughs> invite me back. <laughs> I will, we will do that.